Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Suzanne Leal. Suzanne is a lawyer and a writer. Her books include The Teacher's Secret and Border Street. Suzanne's latest novel is The Deceptions, and she's joining us to discuss it today on Great Conversations. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and their ongoing connection to this land. Here on Final Draft, we remain committed to exploring the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture, as featured on 2SER, whilst maintaining social distancing. That means I am recording from home for a while, so please forgive the occasional dip in audio quality, but I'm going to keep bringing you the the best quality show that I can. And if you are loving the show, why not share the reading adventures and share the podcast with a friend? Now, The Deceptions is a story that emerges out of the Second World War. On the order of the occupying Nazi invaders, Jewish residents of Prague are interred in the fortress town of Terezin, in what would become known as the Theresienstadt Ghetto. Hana is one of those imprisoned in Theresienstadt, watching and waiting as residents slowly leave on unknowable transports. When a local gendarme begins to show Hannah attention, she realises this might be a chance for survival. But at what cost? Out of these terrible times emerge stories and secrets that continue to reverberate through to our modern day. Join me as we discover Suzanne Leal's The Deceptions. My name is Andrew Popel, and I am joined today by Suzanne Leal. Suzanne is a lawyer and a writer. Her books include The Teacher's Secret and Border Street. And today, Suzanne joins me with her new novel, The Deceptions. Suzanne, welcome to Final Draft. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here, Andrew. Really delighted. Thanks for having me. I am, and thank you. No, I just, it's its so wonderful. Like, we are all obviously socially isolated, and it feels a little bit like it, it, it isn't the case when we get to have these conversations, and I love being able to share them, and I, I, I'm excited to, to share the deceptions with people, but with a title like The Deceptions, I feel like I need to tread more than usual in a careful way around spoilers, so I want to I want to give give the audience a taste. Um, the Deceptions is a story that emerges out of the Second World War. On the order of the occupying Nazi invaders, Jewish residents of Prague were interned in the fortress town of Terezin in what would be known as the Theresienstadt Ghetto. Now, out of these terrible times emerge stories and secrets, secrets that continue to reverberate through to our modern day. Um, so I've I've been very very sort of blanket careful there, Suzanne. Uh, we, we will, of course, have to tease out some of these stories, but um, it's an incredible novel that you've created with, with this secret at the heart. Thank you very much, Andrew, and thanks for being careful. You know, I'm, um, I've actually been dying to talk about the secret and dying to find out whether people guessed it, um, whether they knew what was coming, what they think about it. So I'm in a similar position with you where whenever I speak on radio or, or, or online, I need to be very careful. Uh, so thank you for such a careful and um, thoughtful introduction. Well, Suzanne, we, ha- we have the wonderful uh, situation here where this is, of course, going up on final draft, um, so people will be listening to it on the on the radio. But there's also the podcast, so maybe we can take a a, a quick sort of couple of minute detour f- just for the podcast listeners. Um, what what are you what are you most wondering? Are, are people guessing, or when people are guessing, or maybe a little bit of both? Okay, so I've spoken to a couple of people who have finished the book, and again, like I said, I've tried not to 
open that conversation in case they haven't. But people haven't guessed. People uh, haven't um, have been surprised by the end. If I've had any feedback that's been consistent, it's that by the last 60 or 70 pages, people are racing because they're mm. not sure what's happened. They're not sure um, where this is going and what the ending is going to be. And when the secret comes, it does at the moment come as a surprise, which I think is good. Okay. Well, I, I don't mean to break then with tradition. Um, I did I did guess. Um, <laughs> I did guess. Um, and I'm just trying to I, – I usually have my – I usually have my copy – handy but because i'm as i've already confessed sitting under an ironing board with a doona on the top i don't seem to have my copy handy but i know it was a little into the second half of the book that um it started to become apparent um and i was really i was really curious as to how you would play it out and that's i guess I, i i can definitely echo that sense that um the last 70 odd pages you're i'm racing because whilst i guessed I think probably the main secret that we're we're really tiptoeing around. Um, there were there were things that I was also really curious about that that played out um, in those last few pages. So uh, yeah, there's there's a little teaser. Uh, podcast listeners will get a, a taste of that. But um, we 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 can't keep teasing this idea of a secret without at least giving people a better idea. Um, so the deceptions, it, it, it's a novel, but you do acknowledge in your author's note that it is inspired by a story told to you by friends who had been in the Theresian Star ghetto. When it comes to fictionalizing and imagining around these historical moments, and particularly moments that are so painful for the survivors, what considerations did you feel that you needed to, to bring to the book, to acknowledge and to respect in telling the story? I think that's a really important question. I think it's an important question, particularly at the moment, and it feeds into questions of appropriation and who has the right to tell specific stories, whether they be stories that are not from your own culture or whether they're stories that involve a trauma that hasn't been yours. Mm -hmm. And I think um, for me as a non-Jewish woman writing about the Holocaust, each of those issues comes into play. Um, And I felt I think as a writer you can't tread warily if you're going to write you're going to write so when you start to second guess what your audience might think or second guess whether you're making a mistake then I think the writing starts uh, not to dance anymore and I think it starts to become heavy so in the writing itself um, it was my story it was a story I had to tell and that I wanted to tell so I did tell but when I'd finished the story, when I'd got the contract with Alan and Unwin, that's when I had to consider carefully what my role is and um, what I needed to do to make sure that I had spoken about or written about the Holocaust in a sensitive and uh, reasonably accurate manner. Um, a few things came into play. First of all, I was uh, I needed to be as accurate as I possibly could. I think if you're going to write about the Holocaust, you go, you have a duty to do it well and to do, do it with as much accuracy as you can. So that meant a lot of, lot of uh, research. That meant that if someone is to be transported on a particular day, the name of the transport has to be right. Uh, the the uh, journey has to be correct. Where people go has to be correct. And the dates have to marry up. So that took a fair bit of work in terms of chronology. 
And then after that, after I'd finished the edit and it had been edited by my editors at Alan and Unwin, then I sought assistance uh, from mm. fairly eminent Jewish writers in the Australian community. I sent the manuscript to Leah Kaminsky, who, uh, whose most recent book is The Hollow Bones and who is Australian but from a Polish-Jewish background. And I also sent it to Bram Presser, who's come to public attention with his book, The Book of Dirt. And he is um, Czech, well, he's Australian, but Czech-Jewish background with an in-depth knowledge of this Theresienstadt ghetto because his book, The Book of Dirt, is set there, unusually, because there aren't, there aren't that many novels, particularly not Australian-based novels, that are set there. So, yeah, and, and it's a bit nerve-wracking sending your script out. It's a bit nerve-wracking asking favours, quite frankly, and... Um, and both Leah and Brown and also Alan Gold were very, very generous with their, um, with, with their uh, help with the manuscript. And uh, I took on board the comments they had, and some of the comments were fundamental to the manuscript. Um, Bram picked out uh, a problem in that I'd had the Hannah is the young Jewish woman who's taken to the ghetto, and, um, and, and Carol is, is her, her guard. And I had them meet in the gendarmes barracks in Theresienstadt, but that Bram said was going to be unlikely, in fact, impossible. So at the last minute, I was able to change their meeting place to somewhere that would be probably more well, would be more accurate. So that was really helpful. Leah was really helpful in dealing with any sensitivity issues that I'd spoken about in relation to Jewish matters. And um, Alan Gold um, is eminent in the Jewish community and they basically gave his blessings for the way the story was told. And I think finally, uh, I, I'm friends with um, Fred and Eva's uh, daughter. So Fred and Eva were my neighbours uh, whose story was at the heart of this novel and they've now died, but I've remained uh, friends with their daughters and they were two of my first readers, and it was on their um, agreement that the book was something they liked, the, that they would happy to be happy to see published, that I was able to sigh a deep breath and think, okay, we can go. I was very excited when I saw um, Bram's name in your acknowledgements. Bram is a great friend of this show. He's, I think he's been on two or three times, most recently earlier this year, where he and Arnold Zabel and I got a chance to have a yes. chat for um, a segment that we do called the Aussie Classics Book Club about Arnold's brilliant novel, Café Scheherazade. And it was, as I was thinking about what you're, you were saying just there, it recalled me to something that Arnold had written, I believe, or I'd, I'd heard him say in relation to, to telling these stories. Um, and it, he, he sort of talked, and I'm going to paraphrase here, less around whether there is a right to to tell the stories and, and use these voices, but that the writer has a responsibility once they choose to do that. They have a responsibility once they put this story out there. Did you feel a weight of responsibility? Um, how, how do you feel now that this book is out in the world? I feel happy. <laughs> I feel really happy with it. I feel that it's, um, I feel that the, the, cover is right the editing was right um i feel the meter is right with this book and i feel very relieved that the reviews that have come in have um been supportive of the story i've told but most most of all uh and as you say bram's really well known in the community and i was a little bit nervous to be sending the book to him because 
I knew that uh, he could well say this is not appropriate and, and Ram um, has has also been a commentator in this area of appropriation. So he was absolutely the the, the perfect person to talk to. Mm. And I suppose when Bram had said that he was happy to read the manuscript and that he ha- gave his feedback, which I could then incorporate into the book, I felt, yes, a sense of responsibility, but I felt that weight lift slightly in that I had written the book to the best of my ability. I had written it with goodwill. I'd written it with what I hope was empathy and compassion. But, you know, you can get that wrong. And whilst I wouldn't ascribe anything that I have done that might be problematic, you know, in any way to, to what I'm saying is I take responsibility for that, mm. even though Leah and um, Bram have read the book for me. So obviously anything in the book is is mine. But I I do feel um, I, I do feel really excited to have the support of the Jewish community to some extent. So I was slated to have appeared at the uh, Melbourne Jewish Book Week, which has been cancelled, sadly. Um, and I, I've also, um, I'm also been talking with the Sydney Jewish Writers Festival. And mm. um, so I think to have the support of that community has been absolutely fundamental to me. And I do feel that when you talk about the Holocaust, you've got to be careful to give it the weight that it deserves. I mean, this is a mm. book. I'm excited about having a novel out. but And it's not a, not a novel that mires you in the depths of despair. I don't like to write like that. I think it's a hopeful novel. I think it's a novel that is essentially of resilience rather than despair. But you have to take the weight of the Holocaust seriously. You can't um, trivialise it. You can't use it for your benefit. So I do think and I hope I, I carry that responsibility appropriately. Well, let's let's explore then something of the story. Uh, I want to pull on a few threads and yes. all the while again trying to respect and maintain the, the secret, the deceptions that are the, at the heart of this novel. And I want to start with Hannah's story or Hannah's story. Uh, which is where the book starts. Uh, now, Hannah is a Jewish woman in Prague, and she is imprisoned in the ghetto of Theresienstadt, where she allows the affections of a gendarme, and Hannah becomes pregnant and ultimately survives the atrocities to deliver the child. Now, this is a remarkable story of survival that you tell here, but it's also one that is punctuated by loss, uh, the loss of many around her. And I wondered how you went about balancing that in her voice, the voice that you created, both the hope and the pain. Thank you, Andrew. I think what I did with that was um, Hannah has a very arch, dry, almost sarcastic voice. She's very educated. She was very young when she was in the ghetto. She was in her early 20s. And when she starts to tell this story she's a she's a woman her in her mid to late 80s and she is arch and she is clever and she is droll and she is dry and I think that was a really important part of her characteristic in order to carry the reader through the despair that she got she's gone through so she has experienced the worst of humanity she's been part of the holocaust and in telling that rather than being emotional, she's distanced. So mm. she she almost views it as an observer 
And I was guided by that um, in some ways by memoirs that I'd, that I'd read about uh, from Holocaust survivors, but more than anything by my, my former landlord, Fred Perger, really, who, like Hannah, was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was a mathematician, really bright, and a good friend. He became a good friend of mine. But whenever he'd speak about his wartime experience, he would he would speak about it with a detachment that made it excellent for someone transcribing as I was. Um, mm. But every now and then he'd also punctuate it with some slightly sarcastic joke. And members, Jewish people that I've met often have that, um, this real sense of um, intellectual humour and witticism and dryness, even when speaking about difficult matters. So, so Fred, I mean, and this sort of carries its way through the book. So when I was interviewing Fred about Theresienstadt, he said as an aside once, of course, the desserts were very good. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> I, I remember that line. Really good. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm joking. There was no desserts. So, um, and, and I think as I was interviewing him, the fact that he could m- drill down into the very difficult things that happened and take that seriously, but every now and then, Turn it on me almost with a um, a joke that I might take seriously and then would have to catch myself. I think it's that. I think it's the the um, ability to objectify, the ability not to completely remove the emotion from it because Hannah is emotional when she thinks about her friends during that time and the ability to lift it into an almost macabre joke which I think gives a relief to the reader and and keeps the narrative flowing. It struck me as you were talking there that another aspect of Hannah, I asked you about balancing hope and and pain in her voice, but Hannah's voice is something that you you discuss, and I'm going to be a little bit cryptic here because this occurs later in the novel. You discuss around literally how her voice presents. She's a woman who is multilingual, and many of those languages she has acquired later in her life, in her 20s uh, and and beyond. And she has to know how to use language, how to use voice mm. in a multitude of, of circumstances, as would, as would many people of that time. Do you think her ability to, to control voice in that sense, to know language, but also be able to present in a certain way, is that, is that a feature of her survival that she, she was able to do what was required at the time and and as it becomes a key feature right right at the end of the novel yeah i think so look i i've i've had an interest in language for many years i was brought up speaking french my father was a french academic and i've since learnt um german and um a bit of spanish so for me language has always had a really important place in my life as for many people music might have i think probably language has been and foreign languages has, has been my great love. Uh, Hannah, you're right, has a number of languages under her belt for different reasons. And I think language can enable you to bury yourself into a new community. So um, I remember when I was living in France as a child, I would always be really upset when people could pick my accent because I wanted to burrow in. I wanted to be part of the society. I didn't want to stand out. And for my friend Fred Perger, when he moved to Australia in 1968, uh, that's what he wanted. He didn't want to speak Czech anymore, almost not to his family. He wanted to be an Aussie and he wanted to um, speak English and he wanted to leave behind 
what had happened to him, both during the Holocaust and then later under communist rule. And for me, Hannah takes that with her. She uh, doesn't want to be identified necessarily. She wants to leave her past behind. She has a, a facility with music, which I think often translates into a facility with language. My, my eldest son, um, she my two oldest sons uh, um, have a facility with music and also with language, and I think there is a correlation there. And so for Hannah, um, I wanted her to be almost unable to be identified because that's what she'd wanted for herself. She'd had to mm. remake herself time and time again. Now, I want to move us forward in time and also to a more contemporary location to Tessa's story. Now, Tessa is in Sydney. It's a more contemporary time to where we're speaking now. Of course, she's not in, in isolation. But Tessa's um, story very much centres around her work where she allows a seduction by her boss and becomes taken in by his power. And he continues to encourage her and they have this very, very strange, I'd sort of border almost on on saying it's an abusive relationship on his part. Um, whilst he is still, he is married, he is having a child with his wife, it's it's a sort of manipulation that we might call ghosting now or gaslighting. But Tessa also pays for this in her own way. Her, her uh, His behaviour takes a hit on her own self-worth. Now, as much as we know stories like this to be true, do you feel like Tessa is being unfair on herself in the in how much she takes on this man's behavior as part of her own it's interesting um so she, she's a young woman tessa. well she's she's young she's in, in her early 30s tessa and her boss is about 12 years older and he's one of those men i don't know if um your your listeners have have met them there's, there's men who can be completely charismatic and really beguiling but then almost like a spider web um, once you're taken in by the charm, it's very hard to get away. And that was the character of her boss, Evan, for me. And I mm. think when there is that power imbalance, when she's the one who's um, the admin person and he's the one who's a partner in the firm, uh, it's very difficult to work out where you are because um, however the relationship unfolds, there's always going to be that imbalance. Um is she too hard on herself? I think it's often well, what I'm really interested in. I'm interested in the mistress story. So, um, and I think the story of Tessa almost came as part of something I'd heard on the radio where I think it was like a therapy session where there'd been a couple and the heading was uh, the, this, the affair saved my mar our marriage. So the fact that I think it was the man that had, had an affair, it could have been the woman, mm. Uh, and the fact that there'd been this third person involved in the marriage had enabled them to fix up their marriage and go on their way bigger and better into monogamy, back into monogamy. I was always interested in that third person. It's yeah. all very well to have someone there who's, um, who, who can be used as a tool to fix an ailing marriage, but what happens to her? So, and Tessa is that woman. Tessa's that woman where um, she's the third party. We don't really know what the story is between Evan and his wife, just that it's ongoing. And I think it's hard for a woman who comes alone into that, finds herself out of her depth, and then has to question, where is the moral question here? Um, I'm not married. 
um, she would say, you know, she's free to have a relationship with whoever she wants, but she feels um, also some responsibility and she also feels some guilt uh, towards Evan's wife. And, and, I, and I do think that the moral questions are a little bit muddied there. So it was the, the muddying of the moral issues that I wanted to think about and explore with Tessa's relationship with Evan. And I want to keep going into that muddying of the, the morality there because whilst I think it would be difficult to make too direct a comparison between Hannah and Tessa's stories, um, I do see that they are both women who act in extreme situations, very, very different situations, and with that real power imbalance that you've already talked about between themselves and the, the, the man who is in the relationship. Now, Hannah's mother warns her at one point, the, these are ruthless times, Hannah, protect, take protection wherever it is offered and do what you must to secure it. Is it fair, though, to parallel in their very different circumstances the ways both Hannah and Tessa turn to powerful men and find themselves then beholden in ways that make them perhaps almost unrecognisable to themselves? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely a, a, a very pertinent comparison. And when I was interviewing Fred uh, and, and, I, and his stories uh, formed the backbone of my first novel, Border Street, I said to him once... Um, I can't, I can in no way, uh, 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 your, your experiences in the Holocaust have been so bad, there is nothing that I can think of in my own life that can help me understand what happened to you because yours were so um, difficult and my life has been, even, you know, with ups and downs, relatively trauma-free. And he said, trauma is trauma. You have yours and I have mine. There's no comparison. You just deal with what you have to deal with. And whilst, yes, I mean, Hannah's situation is clearly a much more fraught situation, I do think the same issues arise, that um, where, when you are feeling less powerful, what do you do? Where do you find help? And, again, Fred told me that in Theresienstadt, um, relationships within the Jewish community itself were rife as well because um, various members of the community within the Jewish detainees had varying levels of power. So if you were part of the Jewish elder uh, council of elders who ran um, internally the camp amongst the detainees, then you were more protected from transports. And the closer you got to power, the closer you got perhaps to being saved. So I was interested in that um, the moral dilemmas that arise when your life is at stake, but also the moral dilemmas that arise when you're living a day-to-day -day life. Mm. That's extraordinarily wise of Fred too and, and mirrors like psychological research around what we know of trauma. It, it doesn't, our brains don't tend to recognise the relativity of our situation, only the, the absoluteness of how we feel about it. Um, and, and which, which leads me to wonder then, because every, every book finds us at a time, and perhaps that's not a time of the book's choosing, um, if you'll allow that, um, that little personification. So many of us will, will read, as I have, the deceptions in the midst of this lockdown, mm -hmm. this isolation, and a time when I guess we're all being asked and required to do or, or not do if we're sitting at home alone, things for the greater good, things that may require sacrifice. We're, we're all in our own extreme situations, even if it may feel like we're just sitting on our couches watching TV. 
Do you think we can take anything from that about this this morality that you've you've written about and and perhaps the muddying of the morality when we start to think our own situations perhaps are, are more exceptional to others? Yeah, I think what I take from this book, um, unwittingly of course, because I, I didn't I didn't see the coronavirus coming, um, is the ability of people to make the best they can in situations they haven't chosen. So one thing that very that very much interested me about the Theresienstadt ghetto was that the sanitation was poor, the um, treatment was poor, people were detained, the food was lousy, and yet a world was created by the detainees, a world of culture, there were writers, there were directors, there were musicians, and despite the difficulty of the time, the, uh, it, this this bubble of a world uh, kept going and arts and writing and music and life kept progressing and kept people, if not buoyant, at least um, without complete despair. And I suppose the relevance now is that this is a very, very difficult time and if we stop to think about it too much and I'm... I'm not in the front line, so I'm not. I'm not a medical worker. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a teacher. Um, asked, being asked to t- teach children in the wake of this epidemic, but I, I, I do think that we, if we, if we don't focus um, too much on just how difficult this is and what the repercussions can be, our duty, or perhaps even our moral duty, is day to t- day get by do the best we can for our own mental health and our own physical health within the detention that we're under because we are under a sort of a detention, aren't we? I mean, mm. it's voluntary. And so so I think that the moral issues really are what the, the, the priority would be for me, and again, as I say, I can't speak for the frontline workers because I know the situation is so much more difficult there. But my father always said survival is the first imperative. So, you know, before you can save someone else in a plane, for example, you need to put your own mask on first, then someone else's. And I think what I'm finding with this time of lockdown is that we need to be kind to ourselves. We need to be kind um, within the family or within the household we're in, recognise that things are difficult and work out how it can be made better. And I don't know if this is, this is an un, 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 appropriate um, comparison, but it did occur to me that in Theresienstadt, the detainees were charged or charged themselves with a similar sort of duty. I think that's that's also a really poignant note to sort of look at that comparison of, of what we're seeing in online communities, particularly arts communities. You know, you've got musicians are holding live concerts over Instagram. Uh, people are creating art. People are trying to find ways to to make community, despite, and I think particularly when we think about the arts community, despite perhaps not only a lack of support, but almost a seeming abandonment from from powers that be. So, I mean, I, I, I've, I, I don't know if I'm shoehorning this in, but I, tr- I try in every episode, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> remind people that, that artists are out there and they're doing it tough and that you can still support their art by doing things like, ordering books from amazing independent bookstores that will will still deliver to your door. And um, I think that that community, you've talked about the community um, that is evoked through your book, but also the community that we find ourselves in, in isolation, it still exists and we can still, we can still be a part of it. Uh, so yeah, hopefully I'm not shoehorning that into every episode, but I do think it's important to say. 
Yeah, look, I, I, I agree with you. And I know from um, my friends who run bookstores, it's been a particularly difficult time, but there has been a rallying online. And because my book came out, you know, smack bang in the middle of the coronavirus, I had to work very quickly to move um, talks, interviews, publicity online rather than in person. And my um, my experiences as an interviewer and as a facilitator in person. So I think what we've had to do in the arts community is work really quickly and work without help and work um, on a shoestring. And I suppose the arts community is good with that because there's never been money. Uh, most artists aren't aren't uh, earning lots of money. So the ability to be flexible and adaptable is perhaps one of the greater advantages of the arts community. And I have, from my, from my own perspective, I have experienced enormous goodwill from the media, from fellow writers, uh, from interviewers, and I think that bodes well for our society. I think there's enormous goodwill at the centre of what has been a very difficult time. Mm. Now, Suzanne, um, before I let you go, before I let the deceptions go from this conversation, I want to drop a wild card in. Um, and this is this is this is someone something that I saw as perhaps a, a wild card in in your book as well. We've done beautifully to to keep the secret at the heart of the deceptions uh, a secret, so people can go out and discover it. But I'd like to talk about the character of Amir uh, because mm. Amir emerges in subtle ways through the book, uh, and he comes to highlight that the atrocities that we have seen in stories from the Second World War do continue in our world. Just an open question. Can you explain a little of the character of Amir and the role that you give him? Yes. So Amir is a, a, a more minor character, but for me an important character. Uh, one of the narrate well one of the one of the main characters of the book is a woman called uh, Anne, is called um, the Reverend Ruth Martin. And she's, uh, she's in her early 40s. She's a Uniting Church minister. She's single. Her father was also a Uniting Church minister, and he's now got Parkinson's disease, and he is in care as a result of that. And he has a carer, a new carer, who takes him out on recreational activities. And the carer's name is Amir. And he's Persian, and he's very well-groomed. He's very articulate. And... Part of the book is about uh, Ruth's growing friendship or understanding of Amir. And what I wanted to look at with, with Amir is, you know, have all these people that do stuff for, for us. And I suppose I'm taking directly from this. My, my father had Parkinson's. My father was in care towards the very end of his life. But before, while he was still at home, he had the most extraordinary carer who was a um, Colombian man, really articulate, really interesting. And I suppose, and I was so grateful to the care that he gave my dad. And I got to thinking about what's your background? Why are you here? Why are you doing this? And I think that's what uh, interested me about Amir. And, of course, Amir has a very uh, difficult background that only comes out towards the end of the book. And I just wanted to look at the amount of resilience that is needed for someone to leave a country but perhaps they're quite eminent and be prepared to do work which is um, often not appreciated. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me because I think that question <laughs> about Amir 
can feel um it feels like i've sort of dropped it in without context and i i i would challenge readers to go out and read the deceptions to discover all of the characters and many more that I didn't mention for reasons of, of secrecy. Uh, I am speaking with Suzanne Leal and we are discussing her new novel, The Deceptions. It is it is a riveting novel. It is, um, I, look, I've got to say, <laughs> Suzanne, you, I've had this the most wonderful experience, even if you've, you've caused more than a few tears over the last week, uh, being in your world of The Deceptions. So thank you so much and thank you for coming on Final Draft. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you very much for such perceptive questions. That's it for this great conversation with Suzanne Leal. Suzanne's latest novel is The Deceptions, and it's out now through Angan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. And at the moment, it's also being recorded in my house <laughs> under a doona that is propped up on an ironing board. Now, the show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel, who is me sitting under said doona. If you want to keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser And if you click subscribe in your podcast app, you will get a new Great Conversation every week to help you discover books and help you while away the isolation hours. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. So please, happy reading.